Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and much like the meal in this film that we are about to discuss, this podcast is also a three-part symphony. It's true. Amazing. (laughs) What an excellent analogy you've made there, Jason. I'm just here for that. I'll see you guys later. Thank you. No, this is going to be your show, I feel like, because we are here with a special bonus episode on the end of our season on the films of 2012. And by request of some, I believe, and mainly by request of Jason, we are talking about the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi from director David Gelb. and. It's all about food, and Jason is is a foodie. Well, I'm th- thanks for that, Josh. Instead of saying Jason's a fat fuck, you just said it. <laughs> I didn't even think to say it. Uh, I've been losing weight. I'm doing all yeah. right. Uh, hey, so uh, you, yes, Josh. What, what really the impetus was was um, was seeing all the requests when we always put up at the beginning of the season, like what movie do you want? And a lot of people did want Jiro, and I was. Excited about that because it's our first bonus episode that's a documentary. True. Yeah, we always do a a documentary. And I think there may be at least one other season where we did a couple documentaries because we had one in one of our other categories. But we always do at least one. So it's great, though, to add one to that for this season. I think we had quite a few uh, interesting documentaries that we considered talking about. So this gets us talking about one of the extra ones. And uh, we should say, if you're listening to this on our Patreon, one of our small but dedicated number of subscribers, we very much appreciate it. Uh, If you are listening to this later on our main feed, we still appreciate you, but less. So No, I appreciate (laughs) them the same because we all know the Patreon's a front for whatever racket Dave is running over there. Dave is laundering $3 a month (laughs) through that Patreon Mm -hmm. for his nefarious activities. Maybe, maybe, Josh, that's like, oh, like, look over here while he's doing something else Mm. that none of us are paying Mm -hmm. attention to. Mm -hmm. Dave is a wizard, Mm -hmm. much like Jiro. Dave is the Jiro of podcasting. So, Mm. (laughs) um, yeah, so this documentary uh, from director David Gelb is about Jiro Ono, who is the world-renowned, and became more world-renowned, really, thanks to the success of this film, Sushi sushi Chef. It's a tongue twister there. Sushi Chef. Thank you. <laughs> at, uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce the name of his restaurant, but at his restaurant, which is in, I was unclear, like, reading reviews and stuff, is the restaurant, Jason, do you know, is it in the subway station, or is it in, like, a building near the subway station? No, I think it's inside the subway station. Okay, yeah. Some references said it was in a building near there. But either way. Yeah, and then his son Takashi has like his spinoff version in a different neighborhood. Yes. So, but either way, it's this very small, unassuming looking place that has garnered wide acclaim and three stars from the Michelin Guide, which is the main sort of notable thing that they mention here that, that gets attention, gets the attention of David Gelb. And became this this kind of sensation. It grossed two point seven million dollars. Um, I'm not sure. I couldn't find a budget figure, but still, for for a niche kind of documentary, two point seven million is a pretty good amount of money that uh, to to pick up at the box office. And and this, of course, is one of those movies that most people, even though it made a decent amount in theaters, most people saw this later on via streaming. I think it spent a long time on Netflix. And certainly, as we'll talk about later, resembles a lot of current content on Netflix. So um, this is a movie that that built, I think, a following over time as people checked it out at home. I was surprised it was shot over the course of just one month in January 2010. And um, that's that was the principal photography. So a lot of insights and a lot of uh, material related to Jiro that he got in such a short period of time. Yeah, Josh, uh, a lot of follow-up points for me coming right at you. Oh, yes, please. You know, you mentioned the three Michelin stars, and Jiro was the oldest chef to ever get one, as we hear Masahiro Yamamoto, the food critic in the movie, talk about 
And he's an amusing character because he's just like, did you know that Jiro did this and Jiro did this? And he's just telling people all these legends of Jiro, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> he got his three stars and then went back to work that night because he was bored. Right. But um, in 2019, Michelin removed Sukiyabashi Jiro from its book, which uh, basically revoked the three Michelin star status because Jiro no longer takes public reservations. And customers just go through a concierge at a luxury hotel, which is a very strange thing. Like, oh, well, you take your reservations this way so you don't get Michelin stars anymore. I don't know. Well, I think the idea there, just from what I read, was that it's essentially not open to the public. And the theoretical point of the Michelin guide is to give people a guide to where you can eat if you are in a certain place. I mean, who's it open to then? It's open to people with connections and money, you know, Uh, it's not something that you can just, it sounds like it's not something that you can call and get a reservation, even if the reservation is months away, that you have to have a connection through a tour or a, a luxury hotel or something in order to even get a reservation. I think we all blew it by not trying to go eat at uh, Jiro's restaurant here. And uh, we could have really laid in and given some personal experience. Takashi's restaurant still has two Michelin stars. Yeah. Do we have that in our awesome movie year budget? Travel to Japan and eat at fancy restaurant. (laughs) If Dave wasn't stealing all that Patreon money, we would. (laughs) That'll be that'll be an extra an extra tier. We'll have like one, three, five and five thousand dollars for the Patreons if you want to send us to Japan. Yeah. I don't like flying and you don't like sushi. This is a perfect trip. Yeah, no, I'm definitely not going to go on that trip. So um, it'll be all you there. if You can manage. We'll send you on a boat to Japan, maybe. I would do it. Maybe I could do some shows or whatever. <laughs> totally. I want to see you do a comedy show at uh, Sukiyabashi Jiro. Hey, I've done, I believe I've done shows in, uh, uh, I've done shows in like hot dog restaurants, you know, if, if, uh, you know, I've done shows and pizza places. So why not? Let's go do a sushi show. Let's do it. Yeah. So uh, the one other thing I want to say about the restaurant, it's amazing to me, the the restaurant itself, I mean, not only is Jiro this, you know, uh, as you said, the oldest chef to get these Michelin stars, he's 85 in when the film was made, but the restaurant opened in 1965. Um, so I mean, the restaurant itself is is been around for almost 60 years at this point. And of course, sushi, at least in America, started taking off in the 80s, as they mentioned. And um, they were, Jiro even says himself, he used to do appetizers and all different things, but now he just focuses all on the sushi. Right. One thing I wonder, Jason, and this is, uh, you can help me with my food ignorance. They mentioned the development of the California roll as part of the reason that sushi kind of took off globally. And given the name of that, I guess I had assumed that that was some sort of terrible, like, Americanization of sushi. But is that actually, like, a legit Japanese thing? Yeah, I mean, it's just a very famous version. I mean, it's like white people sushi. Right, right. That was what what I I figured. But was it invented, like, in Japan for Japanese people and then white people co-opted it? Uh, I think it says, like, it, it probably came from L.A., like, when, like, Wolfgang Puck and People like that were doing like early versions of fusion food, but you know, there it could be LA, it could be Vancouver, but so they were they were westernizing the idea of sushi and Josh uh, California roll. A good one has crab, a bad one has imitation crab, and then you got your avocado and your cucumber in there and okay. some sesame seeds. And blah, blah, blah. But that's not something that Jiro would make, is what I guess I'm getting. I don't at. think Jiro would make you a California roll. However. When I get sushi with my daughter, she likes California rolls, but she likes uh, other types of stuff, too. Would you take her to, to Tsukiyabashi Jiro? I don't know if either of us would be ready for that. <laughs> I would try it. But, uh, you know, I've done, like, fancy sushi tastings, and, like, the whole idea is, like, the purity of the fish and, and whatnot. And um, I respect that, but I don't necessarily love, like, all – like, I don't love fishy fish. I like kind of more mellow fish. So mm. certain pieces of nigiri or sushi – just a little too much for me. Wow. All right. I, I'm surprised to hear you hesitating at any kind of uh, high-end food, really. Oh, there you go. Calling me a fat fuck again. I, I'm calling you a gourmand, but you can continue insulting yourself through this episode if you want. 
Unbelievable. Uh, so this movie was highly, highly acclaimed. It has a 99% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. There was one negative review out of <laughs> who, who's the asshole? It was actually the, it was actually the New York Times. I forget the name of the uh, critic, but uh, I didn't put it down because it seemed like not representative if something is this highly acclaimed. Uh, although there's there's some some slightly critical remarks that I have here, but mostly critics were very very positive about this film. Uh, Roger Ebert said. David Gelb's Jiro Dreams of Sushi is a documentary about a man whose relationship with sushi wavers between love and madness. This is a portrait of tunnel vision. Jiro exists to make sushi. Sushi exists to be made by Jiro. Do the math. Even at the high prices of his premium fresh ingredients, you realize he must be a rich man. But to what end? As a documentary about world-class sushi, this film is definitive. It runs only 81 minutes, but the subject is finite. While watching it, I found myself drawn into the mystery of this man. Are there any unrealized wishes in his life? Secret diversions? Regrets? If you find an occupation you love and spend your entire life working at it, is that enough? Yeah, so I, I uh, pulled from that also where he's talking about, like, how does he know that he needs to improve on something like with the octopus, for instance, right? Uh, when he was getting, when they were massaging it for a half hour before serving it, that was when he won the three Michelin stars, but now they've kind of moved it to a 45 minute massage. Like how does he, how does he get to that point where he's like, no, we have to improve on what most people already think is close to perfect. Right. right. I did. I didn't quote this part, but being Roger Ebert, of course, he also speculates about Jiro's uh, sex life. <laughs> whether he's thinking about sushi while in bed with his wife. Mm. Oh, oh my. We don't know. I did wonder. Ebert wonders this, and I kind of wonder too. I mean, one of the things we really don't see is anything of like Jiro's home life. I mean, does he have a wife? I wondered about, you know, his sons, who is their mother? Is that someone who is still around? Is he still married to that person or whatever? We never even get a mention of her at all or see Jiro at home or the sons at home. I wondered uh, about they mentioned they mentioned the wife. I, did they? Know, I didn't but... recall that at all. Yeah, I think they mentioned her just briefly, just the idea of like, oh, I wasn't around. And well, right. He, wife took care of the kids. Yeah, you know? he says that. But but it, that's when the kids were younger. Like, is that is she still here? And I would have if so, like, I would have been interested to hear her perspective on. Uh, I agree with that. I agree with that. I actually thought the same thing about Yoshikazu, his uh, son, who is in line to take over. Uh, Jiro, uh, Jiro's restaurant and is still in line to take over as of this day because I'm excited to tell everyone that as of recording, Jiro is still alive, still making sushi at the age of 97. Yeah. So, um, but I thought the same thing because like he's so dedicated to his father and his father's business. And I even looked like, is there a wedding ring? Is there, and it doesn't seem like there, it, uh, from what I can find on my research about him, it seems like he's just like straight sushi bachelor. Right. I wondered that about both sons and if they were married, if they had kids, and especially because there's such a strong emphasis in this film about that generational thing and the idea that these sons are obligated to take over Jiro's restaurant to follow in his footsteps. Like, don't they in turn need to like have sons to take over in the next generation? And what if they don't? What happens then? And that's also something that just uh, isn't really addressed. Yeah. Was that the Quakers, Josh? Who was the religious group that didn't want to have any children and then quickly died out? I mean, Quakers are still around, so I'm not really sure. But Who is it? I don't know. I'm not <laughs> sure what that is. Sounds like a good documentary. Yeah. I'm not sure what you're, you're getting at, but it's definitely not Japanese sushi chefs. I can tell you that. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. Uh, the, the religion of Japanese sushi. It, it is, is uh, a religion in a way. Out. I mean, that's kind of what, uh, what this movie focuses on. Uh, Josh, it was the Shakers. That's who I meant. All right. I'm glad we cleared that up. And you probably haven't heard of them because they never had any children in there. I have actually. That uh, sounds familiar. I guess maybe yeah. there aren't any uh, around anymore. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Well, you got to have kids to keep to keep the lineage going, Josh. I, I guess you do. Anyway, this movie is about... Spread your seed, Josh. Let's talk about Jiro again. <laughs> Ty Burr in the Boston Globe said, Jiro Dreams of Sushi is a foodie's delight, obviously and best seen either on a full stomach or with restaurant reservations immediately following. Gelb films the preparation of the nigiri with appropriate reverence, soaring strings on the soundtrack, 
as knives glide through the red, glistening chunks of tuna in slow-mo close-up. But the film says as much about the human price one pays for perfection, or the pursuit thereof, and it's not in dollars or yen. The film's title isn't kidding. Jiro really does dream of sushi, and his approach to life is the same as his approach to food. Do the same thing every day, only simpler and better. Yeah, I mean, he's talking about the regrets one might have, but Jiro has zero regrets in this movie. He's very, um, he seems very satisfied with the path that he chose. Yeah, and it is kind of crazy to think of that. Like, there is that one line where he's talking about the older son and uh, he's like, yeah, you know, all he has to do is just do the same thing every day for the rest of his life. (laughs) And Jiro's just like, you know, come on, duh. What else would you do? And I just thought that was very uh, representative of his worldview there and that it i i have a feeling that maybe the son does not share that worldview but isn't willing to say so i mean whatever he at what we've learned from the film and i believe obviously he's still working there is whether he believes it or not he's on that path right exactly but i think that's sort of the impression that yeah it, it doesn't really matter what he believes because he's he's doing it no matter what. Right. Like they say, he wanted to be a race car driver right. at F1. And he's like, nope, you're going to be a sushi yep, chef. Yeah. Well, who knows? He probably would have been a crappy race car driver anyway. You don't know I that, don't Josh. Know that. You're, he, rides a, he rides his bike to the market in very busy streets. Maybe he's got all types of uh, hand-eye coordination that you're not aware of. That's true. He does have a fancy car that he says goes, what is it, 300 kilometers an hour <laughs> or something. So the Simple pleasures for, for Yoshikazu. Totally. So um, slightly more critical, and this is also, I thought, interesting, kind of anticipating the legacy of this film. Uh, Maggie Lee in The Hollywood Reporter said, it's torture to watch Jiro Dreams of Sushi if you are on an empty stomach. David Gelb's documentary on Jiro Ono, the 85-year-old sushi chef whose Tokyo restaurant received three Michelin stars, is a pian to perfectionism and a crafty bit of food porn. The trendiness and general accessibility of the topic means tasty offers from TV, theater, and festivals will be handed on a plate to the sales agent. Never mind that the cinematography is so glossy that the film sometimes looks like a fashion shoot, or that it serves philosophy in bite-sized chunks without delving into the background or evolving culture of eating and preparing sushi in the wake of culinary globalization. I mean, that that's the real legacy of this film, right? right? Is that, you know, this kind of, it was this and it was Bourdain, uh, you know, who's doing this before and then and concurrently and the way that uh, food porn is shot and stuff like that. And um, as someone who has a little side business doing these things from time to time, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because like, I think this guy nailed it. And I think we were on a shoot not too long ago where I thought we nailed it. And uh, all we got was complaints. Like we didn't get enough food porn. We didn't get enough shots the right way or this or that. So, um, but this has become the dominant way that people see food, not just in long form entertainment, but on Instagram and all, you know, TikTok, all the social media. Right, right. So, I mean, when you do a shoot like that, do your clients know this film and do they have this kind of style in mind, whether they reference it specifically or not? I don't, yeah, I think, I mean, again, like I think this and, and the Bourdain stuff is just like, you don't even have to mention it at this point in time. But um, it's just a matter of really, like she said, it, it's a fashion shoot, right? right? And maybe that was like, on the last one, we should have done a better job of getting like a high end backdrop as opposed to just shooting it on a table. But yeah, all this stuff is, I mean, they want it, you know, sexy, sleek, you know, all that, all that stuff. Sexy sushi, definitely. Sexy sushi. I think sushi is considered a sexy food by many and probably an aphrodisiac. By I guess so. That's not something that we dove into in this film. And, and I'm okay with that. So, Jason, as, as, a, as a foodie, I assume you'd seen this movie probably when it came out. Uh, not when it came out, it was one of those that was on my list. And then I did see it probably shortly, like once it came to whatever it was back in 2012 DVD or platform or whatever. But yeah, I mean, this was one that, uh, all us, uh, food nerds were aware of. I'd say. Right. And, and I mean, I was too, as a non food person, <laughs> certainly aware of this film. I mean, it was one of the most highly acclaimed documentaries of that year. And I, 
I'm not sure if I saw it in a, I probably didn't see it in a theater. I might've watched a press screener or watched it again a little later on, on DVD or on Netflix or something like that, probably as a catch up uh, among the notable films of that year. But, um, you know, as someone who, again, is, is neutral on the subject matter, I find this movie pretty interesting, especially when it delves into the personal relationships. I'm less interested in the minutia of preparing sushi, but Jiro and his sons and their whole dynamic is pretty fascinating. And I think that's why I said I would have been interested to learn more about his home life and in all that kind of dynamic that they don't get into. But I liked it then and I like it now, too. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I would have liked a little more on the personal stuff. Although they did, they did do a good job of like tracking his history from being a kid to now. Right. But I know what you mean, getting like some more like familial interview type stuff. That said, like I obviously did find these the segments of like how he's cooking rice to get perfect textures and temperatures or like, you know, we mentioned the octopus massage, um, you know, things like that. Uh, those techniques that separate him from everyone else. It, it always interests me. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's not that it wasn't at all interesting. I just for me, I think maybe a little of it went a long way. And after a while, I was like, all right, I get the idea. Um, and I don't need a sort of point by point, step by step look at the process of every different kind of dish that he's preparing. But it's, it, you know, it's a minor complaint. So, Dave, did you watch this one when it came out? I had not. I had not heard of it. Um, but I like sushi and I like the movie. All right. This was your first time seeing it. Yep. Absolutely. Anything else you want to mention about the background of this film, Jason? Uh, Josh, a tasting menu at Jiro uh, starts at $270, which is for three Michelin star, not that uh, not that outrageous, I'd say. Yeah, I was wondering that because, I mean, obviously that sounds like a lot of money to have a meal in a restaurant. But on the other hand, I know from talking to you, when you go to some high-end restaurants here in Vegas, like that's not an atypical price for a really, uh, you know, gourmet type of meal. No, I think some people might think, oh, it's just for sushi, though, right? But obviously, he's the master of what he does and, you know, is able to get the finest product in. And that's why that is uh, the way it is. Right. And he's serving you like 20 pieces of sushi or something, which to me seems like a lot. But I don't know. Is that a normal amount? I mean, it's a lot. But, you know, you're going in for the tasting menu. They're going to they're going to make sure you feel like you were got your money's right and that's what i'm saying i feel like it's not just like oh you, when you say it's just sushi like that it's a good amount of that and um they do talk about here how you have to eat quickly that's the idea right he it's everything is made exactly you know you want to eat it the moment it's put down and so you spend all this money and then you're there for half an hour or whatever right maybe that's it and i i, I wasn't meaning like oh it's just sushi i just mean like you know when you when you go to these like fancy rope like you know he mentions joel robichon and i've eaten at uh Robichon here and it's like you know red course soup course this course that course meat course dessert intermezzo you know all this stuff uh dessert too so like as opposed to here's a bite of nigiri here's a bite of sushi you know and everything right like right yeah you just it's a, adjust your expectations i guess for for that kind of thing so uh we'll come back then in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on jiro dreams of sushi Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this special bonus episode for our season on the films of 2012. We are talking about the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And as we've said, Jason, you are the food expert here. And although I would say that this is an accessible film for people like me who are not, you know, food experts or people who eat at gourmet restaurants, but I mean, as far as the showcase of food here, I mean, we talked a little bit about the sort of fashion aspect of it, but what, what does this movie do uh, showcasing food, I guess, or what is groundbreaking about it? What it does and what Bourdain did is connect the tasting experience to the emotional and artistic experience, right? And I think that's really where this comes from. And I was thinking back on... Uh, the original Iron Chef in Japan used to be like so bombastic and over the top, but they would showcase these dishes that were so beautiful and you would have the classical music under it and just really heighten the experience. And obviously this has become Gelb's specialty. And this is what um, Bourdain did so well is like 
Whereas Bourdain might have been telling the story verbally a little more, what you're getting is like all these emotional impacts. Like it's almost like a sensory experience without tasting it, right? So I think that's what it really does is showcase like how this food is elevated or how it relates to the community just by this kind of philosophy of like, it's a symphony and we have the music and we show the preparation and just like the beauty and the technique of it, I think is all shining through here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you get the sense of not only the dedication and I mean, the, the hard work is almost comical at a certain point in this film. I mean, there's the one scene where one of the apprentices talks about how there was this one particular thing that he was trying to do or trying to make. And he did it like 200 times before Jiro said, oh yeah, that was pretty good. (laughs) And then he's like, I wanted to cry. I mean, and it's almost, it's almost ridiculous, but you do get the sense that these people care a lot. Even the sons who have sort of, to some degree, been like roped into this, even if that was the case, they care too. And they really do put a lot of their, their personal passion into what they're doing here. Well, this is their life's work, right? right? That's what they're all going to do. And with sushi, you know, and obviously Japan, very strict and like, hey, you have to master this before you can move on to this step, right? So, you know, uh, I think you're talking about the scene with the tamago, the the egg, mm. little egg sushi there where it's like, yeah, uh, you know, you have to master this and then maybe we'll let you touch rice, you know, because as they say in here, people think sushi, they think fish, but rice is an essential component and the rice can be really, really special. Yeah. Rice can be really, really special. Thank you. Thank you, Josh, for adding your, your food knowledge to the, I have some, to the I show have some here today. Instant rice cups that you can put in the microwave for a minute and they're, they're really special too. Have you, have you mastered making those yet? Close. I'm getting there. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll let you touch an egg after that. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't know if I want to do that. Josh, here's a uh, quote from David Gelb. Originally, I was going to make a film with a lot of different sushi chefs who all had different styles. But when I got to Jiro's restaurant, I was not only amazed at how good the sushi was and how much greater it was than any other sushi restaurant I had ever been to, but I also found Jiro to be such a compelling character and such an interesting person. I was also fascinated by the story of his son, who is 50 years old, but still works for his father at the restaurant. So I thought, here's a story about a person living in his father's shadow while his father is in a relentless pursuit of perfection. It was the makings of a good feature film. So that's the breakdown, buddy. Yeah. And I mean, of course, the the idea of going to various sushi places, I mean, that's not, I don't think, something that he's done. But the the general concept there is kind of what he does in, in his TV work, I think, right? Uh, I would say so. You know, a few years ago, me and a few producers were out pitching a similar type project, which was uh, it was uh, called Handmade. At first, I called it Pizza Kings, and it would now be Pizza Kings and Queens because they're uh, you know we we want to spotlight all the great female uh, pizza makers, but uh, as well. But anyway, what we did is we located you know ten to twenty of the best pizza makers in the world. And we were going to all follow it, you know, there are unique stories and it would all kind of climax at the World Pizza Championship in Parma, Italy. And I still am baffled that we couldn't sell that project. That seems like a no brainer to me. Did you find like the Giro of pizza? I mean, you know what? In a way, the Giro of pizza is so the real Giro of pizza is probably in Phoenix right now. But in Las Vegas, we have John Arena, who's the uh, who owns Metro Pizza and is regarded as one of the great pizza makers in the world. And everyone, because of his spirit, says he is like the Yoda of pizza. So I might not have found the Jiro of pizza, but I am good friends with the Yoda. I mean, both of those sound good to me. If you're Jiro <laughs> or Yoda, right. like you, you've done well for yourself, probably. Yeah, well, there you go. Chris Bianco is the chef in um, Phoenix who now has an outpost in LA, which takes months to get a reservation. And he's like, He's the guy who's known as like, wow, look at, you know, he just kind of blew out the idea of what people think of pizza and, and what's capable. Of yeah. It. I mean, and that seems like something that they t- that they get into here, too, that on the one hand, Jiro's sushi is very stripped down and, and simple. And that that food critic talks a lot about how that is the case. But 
They also get into the things that Jiro does that have been innovative, right? The way he prepares certain kinds of food in a slightly different way. And, you know, just something like they talk about, oh, we used to, what is it, like boil the shrimp at the beginning of the day, all of it. But now we boil it individually each time someone comes in. And like, which seems like to me, you know, a very minor change, but obviously that makes a huge difference. And it's just those small things that elevate the food that they make. Right. Like the rice and the pressure they keep on the rice and the cover, which is like a homemade, you know, kind of uh, rigged up contraption, I guess. But that's what I found interesting because it's not like, um, you know, hey, this is a this is a 20 ingredient thing. It's rice and fish for the most part. Right. So for him to take a food that is, uh, you know, simple on the surface, but maybe deceptively simple and how you can prepare it right. And he's doing it in the simplest, but most, uh, you know, the best way to showcase the flavors was a very cool thing to look at yeah. and learn about. Jiro, Jiro putting the same kind of pressure on the rice that he puts on his sons. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, Josh is really taking it to a 97-year-old legend. I, I mean, I, I think it's part of the point of the film and not not to tear Jiro apart or anything, but that that there's a there's a some a certain amount of tension in the family dynamic here is there not i mean maybe but maybe they just let it dissipate because they have such reverence for their father um and the other thing is like you know we, as we learn in jiro's backstory his parents abandoned him he was basically on his no, on his own since nine years old so like you know with that in mind like jiro's like hey i let him i i you know Made sure they were always clothed and fed. Their mom really did most of the raising, but uh, but you know, I let I let him finish high school, and then I brought him into the fold, and that was cool of me. Yeah, I, I that was another thing though that I would have been interested in more because when you first see that, and Jiro's like, he starts by saying something like, "Oh yeah, you know, you gotta you gotta make sure the kids work hard, and you know, when they leave home or whatever," and and it's like, okay, I guess, and then he says, you know, that's like when I left home when I was nine and they told me, you know, you can never come back. And I was like, what, what the fuck is happening here? They kicked you out when you were nine. And we never really learned more about like, where did he go? Cause you know, he didn't go get his own apartment when he was nine years old, I assume. Um, but he talks about how he didn't want to like live on the street. And so he started working, but where did he go or what did he do? I mean, there's that one scene where he goes back to his hometown and he has a little like reunion with some of his childhood friends and I wondered, you know, was this after he got kicked out of his home that he was in school with these people? I felt like there was a big gap between on my own at nine and, you know, world renowned sushi chef at 85 that 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 I would have liked to build in a little more. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, this movie is less than an hour and a half. So we could have, like you said, learned some more via his wife if she is still around or. Um, if not someone else in the family, perhaps. Right. right. And then, you know, the background stuff also might've been good to see the, the, the sons in away from work in their kind of social settings or familial settings. But, um, you know, like Jiro himself, Josh, this movie is all about the sushi. It is, it is. But I feel like on the one hand there, it seems like there could have been more in certain areas. And then on the other hand, there's parts of the movie where it did get a bit like repetitive or like, I don't really need this. I mean, there's a long sort of interlude where we follow the older son as he goes to the fish market and Gelb interviews a bunch of these like merchants at the fish market. And we learn a bit about them, but the movie isn't really about them. And it just seems sort of like a meandering little detour. Like we got to fill some extra space. So let's put these fish vendors in here too. Well, what I got from that is like, you know, Jiro is such a perfectionist. He sought out the kind of similar mindset uh, vendors, you know, the people who are doing things a little differently and just care so much about their product that he's the only one. Uh, they're the only ones he'll buy from. And in return, they're like, yeah, Jiro gets top choice on everything. Right. And we, we hear that from his like rice vendor, too, who talks about how, you know, oh, some other people want to get my super nice rice or whatever. And but they don't know how to cook it like Jiro does. Right. Right. Even Jiro says, like, I'll keep taking it because I'm the only one who knows how to cook it. Right. right. But yeah, I mean, and there was one other line, and I don't remember if it was the rice guy or one of the fish guys or whatever, where Jiro is like, oh, he knows 
you know, he's so knowledgeable. He knows so much more about this than we do. Like he could just be making it all up. And I do kind of like the idea that like there's a level of expertise where you are like the only person who knows this stuff. And so it really almost doesn't even matter what you actually know versus what you can pretend to know. Who know who knows, man? You're you're such a expert in your field. It's interesting too, because like, you know, I remember my grandparents, my grandmother's father, my great grandfather, Max, had like a fruit store growing up. And like, you know, back then everyone would go to all these individual purveyors, right? For everything. And then um supermarkets came in and you know, you have your one-stop shops. But now there is like kind of that philosophy of going back to individuals for if you can afford it, right? Like, oh, I'm going to source this from here. I'm going to source that from here. And just focusing on like the best um, of what people do, which is like what Chris Bianco does. He, uh, the pizza chef, you know, he's got his own kind of brand of tomato. That's so good. Like that, uh, you know, they're just, they're just cultivating the best in their fields. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's clearly what's going on here. And it's, it's just as important to get those ingredients as it is to have the preparation process be meticulous and, and the way that Jiro does it. If he didn't source those ingredients at the high level that he does, then the food wouldn't taste as good. Well, to tell you the truth, like, cause this is something I talk about with chefs a lot is like, you know, um, like I like this stuff. I'm a big fan of like five ingredients or less on the plate and letting the, the ingredients shine. I think there are a lot of chefs and it comes from like an insecurity rather than a security in their abilities who feel like I need to put 30 different ingredients on this thing. I need to do this. You know, I need to deck it out in all these different ways. And it's like there are techniques you can showcase to elevate things or there are techniques that you can utilize to kind of diminish what something should taste like. Japanese food, Italian food, right? Greek food, simplicity is the kind of name of the game there. Right. Yeah. I mean, simplicity is certainly something that, that comes across here. And I mean, that's that, that food critic that you mentioned. He talks about that so much about how that's what makes this food great or that it's maybe not what makes it great, but that it's amazing that it's so simple and yet it's still so much better than any other sushi that you'll ever eat. Josh, have you ever had uh, food that has like uh, affected you emotionally? I doubt it. I'm not, you know, uh, that kind of, I feel like if it was, it would be something more like a food that I ate as a child that I ate again, that might evoke a memory or something like that, but not, that's not what's going on here. I mean, this is the idea of eating this food that's so delicious or whatever that you are, are affected by like the, the artistry that goes into making it. Right. I think that's the idea. Uh, I mean, I think it's the whole experience, but obviously if it didn't taste as amazing as it did, it wouldn't matter, right? Like you can mess around with all the techniques in the world, but in the end it has to be delicious. Right. Well, yes, of course. But I mean, have you had that kind of experience where you go to a restaurant, like it's something new and you taste it and it just is just uh, overwhelms you like that? Yeah, I have, uh, you know, um, I'm a big fan and not that he needs my support cause he's like basically going to own the entire city with restaurants by next year. James trees at Esther's kitchen. Well, uh, when I wrote about that, it, you know, I had known he was coming into town and he was like a big chef in LA who was like, you know, Gordon Ramsay's food fixer on the TV shows. And I got in like, you know, the, there were delays and delays and delays. And then I went in like before it actually opened to try like, something as simple as spaghetti and meatballs. And I had that like kind of, you know, ratatouille food critic moment where it's like a sense memory, yeah. but, um, but it, for me, it was like a sense memory of like, is this a real sense memory? Have I ever had spaghetti and meatballs this good? Or is this just the idealization of what spaghetti and meatballs is supposed to be? So it's fun when you can, when you can have things that like, uh, affect you emotionally like that. And, uh, you know, now I eat much healthier, which is good, but I think I definitely, you know, sought all that stuff out for a while. Right. Yeah. And I actually have eaten <laughs> Esther's Kitchen and even in my unsophisticated palate and certainly enjoyed it. Although I feel like I'm probably not at the level of being able to appreciate it the way that you do. I know. But what is the greater compliment that a guy who like eats food and gets paid uh, to write about food and uh, knows about food? Loved it, or that a guy who knows nothing about food and doesn't care about food can also recommend it. I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure what 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 would James prefer uh, as a recommendation for his restaurant. Well, I'll ask him, and we'll, I'll get back yeah. to you guys. Dave, have you ever had an experience like that with uh, perhaps with some sort of uh, keto chips? 
<laughs> Good question. Uh, yeah, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I do know the last time that I uh, ate something that just like blew my mind was actually just a couple of weeks ago. It was a cheat meal, unfortunately, but uh, it was uh, over at Clove, the uh, Indian restaurant, the garlic naan. Like I took one bite of that and I was just like, what, what am I even doing? Like I should Man, just be I eating this go. all the time. I, I'm going to call James right now and ask him live on this podcast. <laughs> Let's see if he answers. If not, have fun. Hey, we're talking about you on my podcast right now. So we have to ask you a question. Okay. Okay. So we're talking about Jiro Jeems of Sushi. And I had mentioned, and they asked, you know, uh, are there any like foods that brought you to like an emotional kind of state? And I mentioned the first time I tried your spaghetti and meatballs, which I put in the article, you know, and my buddy, Josh, who's my co-host is like, uh, all he eats is like instant macaroni and cheese and like terrible. He's like the opposite of us. Right. But he said he's been to Esther's and he really likes it too. So we were wondering, what is the nicer compliment? Is it like the educated food person who knows about food, who loves your food? Or is it like the guy who eats like a toddler who also loves your food? So I think it's kind of, you have to take both like within their parameters, right? I mean, like if you took him to Alinea, he probably wouldn't enjoy himself and he'd probably feel uncomfortable the whole time while you and I would be joking and fucking shits and giggles and having that kind of thing. For people who eat regular food and for them to come to a restaurant and be able to have a comparison where they know and they can tell that we do quality is very awesome because that's what Esther's is supposed to be is where we're not cooking for the 1%. You know, we're cooking for people who might only get to go out like once every couple of years or might go out for like their birthday or their anniversary. I mean, that's awesome. And at the same time, when people who really get food and understand like the, the way we create our noodles and that we're using the best products and they can grab onto that, that's also awesome. So I don't think there's a better compliment, but they're both amazing compliments within the confines of, you know, just talking about like, did you enjoy a restaurant or not? Like a lot of people like don't enjoy restaurants because they're too fancy, right? Or or the the appearance of them being too fancy. But you know, you and I like go, we'll eat tacos and just have the best time ever, right? Or we'll go eat fucking like, you know, Shane Google and just have the best time ever. It's, you know, it's about understanding. Like, if you can make someone happy without challenging them, that's awesome. And if it's the same restaurant, you can challenge somebody who really knows something and make them feel comfortable, that's also really, also really cool, too. So, I mean, like, I don't think there's a better one, but I say thank you to both you guys. Oh, see, that's why he's going to run the whole city with restaurants all over the place. Uh, Hey, one other, I want to ask one other question while I, I, well, yeah, you deserve it. You've earned it. But um, with, with Jiro, you know, we're talking about how he's like elevating simplicity, right? He's like, he's so focused on the simplicity, but like finding a technique to even raise the bar with that simplicity. Like, how do you do that with something like a spaghetti and meatballs? That's like, you know, a standard, but a, a, maybe like a simple dish, right? How do you, how do you find ways to kind of, uh, create new areas with that well i mean like you you and i have talked about this and one of the things is you have to really be able to challenge preconceived notions um like everyone has a frame of what spaghetti and meatballs is like if i turn into like a drink then it's not going to have the same impact as like really working out the noodles to create the perfect chew and perfect bite for it or getting the sauce combined with the um, with the noodle properly and in, have that be an enjoyable experience uh, working on meatballs. You know, we've, you know, we've redone our meatballs and esters, you know, four times in five years. So, I mean, like, there's not, like, there, we just keep tinkering and keep working on those things. I think, like, one of the, one of the hardest things to do, and you know who's a real master of this, is, isn't isn't me it's people like john arena who like have great pizza but then it's like then like oh cool you make good pizza that's awesome but the difference is good and great is a, is a mile 
And that mile, once you get started, has to be taken in inches, not feet. So it's really like those guys have spent 20 years just really, really elevating their game, you know, point by point by point by point, inch by inch. Those are the guys who really do, like, fucking impress me. Like, sushi is three ingredients. You know, it's water, rice, and fish. Like, it's really what it is. It's like, figure that out. And how do you make that just perfect? And it's the reason why, you know, there's so many, like, three Michelin star sushi restaurants is because it's so clearly identifiable. They're super uber consistent. They're, like, the, the Japanese kitchen thrives in that environment, that high-pressure, like, long, arduous task to create very simple-looking bites of food. I mean, that's, like, what they're about. I mean, that like, they've been doing that for, you know, 500 years. So it's pretty amazing. Um, I, I have a lot of respect for what they do. And at the same time, I don't think it's worth $700 to eat 12 pieces of fish. <laughs> there you go. All right, man, I'll call you back when we're out of here. Later. All right, man. That was really cool. It was like a pop-in, like on the Merv Griffin show. Oh, who's at the door? But James, you know, mentioned John Arena, who I mentioned as the Yoda pizza. But also I thought one thing that he was talking about was like, you know, uh, how do you maximize those three ingredients? And one thing we see in Jiro, in America, when you go out for sushi, you got your soy sauce in a bottle, you got your wasabi on the side, your ginger, you know, you kind of mix them all how you want. But at Jiro, they brush the sauce on, the soy on for you, the the right amount according to them and that's how you're supposed to eat it and um it's uh, another way that they're kind of uh utilizing their expertise right yeah there is that one scene where one of the apprentices is is preparing something and uh, jiro's son is 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 judging it or whatever is he tastes it and he talks about like oh you put too much wasabi on this so that's something too there right that they're giving you the exact right amount rather than you kind of putting it on yourself and then you go back and you're like, hey, it's uh, rice and fish. And then, you know, you're using too much wasabi, no matter how great and fresh the wasabi is. It's such a powerful flavor. It's going to overpower what they want you to taste. Right. The, what's supposed to be the star of the, the show. There. Yeah. So uh, should we uh, rate this one out of, I mean, five pieces of sushi? I think that's what it has yeah. to be, Josh. So. You know, yeah. so, uh, I gave it three. I like it. It's still good. Um, I think maybe one thing that uh, it suffers from, which is not its fault, is we've seen so much of this since then, and a lot of it by Geld, like this type of stuff, that it doesn't seem as transformative as it once did. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I give it a three pieces of sushi as well, and I enjoy it. I, you know, I, I kind of gave my criticisms of of the scope of the film, but it does sort of now feel like a long TV episode, which, as you said, is 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 sort of just the fault of its success, but still enjoyable, still insightful. I'd still recommend it even to non-food people if you haven't seen this. So, uh, Dave, how would you rate it? I'm also going three pieces of sushi. It's like you guys said, it's like a very solid documentary, but it's kind of a thing that we've seen so many times. Yeah. So we'll come back then in a moment and talk about the legacy of Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this special bonus episode for our season on the films of 2012. We've been talking about the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And I feel like we've mentioned a lot of the legacy here in terms of its influence on like food TV and other food documentaries. Uh, a lot of that via David Gelb himself, who has a couple different shows on Netflix, right? Yeah, Chef's Table was kind of the game changer that came out of this, where he would go and do like an hour episode on um, some of the great chefs in the world. Each one would focus on, you know, one chef in their place. And that was kind of the big thing. There's also street food. And uh, he was actually the second unit director on uh, the menu last year, I think probably there to shoot all the food porn. Yeah, that's I, that's really cool, actually, because, of course, I think one of the reasons that movie works is that the food stuff looks the way that we expect kind of food porn to look in modern representations of it. So, uh, yeah, he, I haven't seen those, those TV series. I did see Wolfgang, which was his feature film documentary about Wolfgang Puck. That is on uh, Disney plus, I believe, which was 
you know, Wolfgang, I think, is probably as interesting uh, a figure as Jiro, but maybe it was a little more of a it was it felt a bit superficial, that documentary. But it does delve into some of that personal stuff as well. Uh, I'm going to recommend one episode of Chef's Table. I think it was like the last one in the first season on uh, Francis Malman, who uh, is a chef, was a celebrity chef in Argentina and then just kind of left that celebrity life to go cook outdoors and like open fires in Patagonia. And he's kind of like the swashbuckler eccentric who's making like amazing food in the most primitive ways. It's really interesting. And like he's doing it at quote unquote, the end of the world, right? Like (laughs) the literal geographic tip of the world almost. So that's a really good episode. Um, Bourdain obviously did so many great episodes, but the one that he did uh, with Ferran Adria, who is another master chef, uh, kind of the spearhead of the molecular gastronomy movement uh, as he was closing El Bui, was just like a masterful episode of television. So uh, there, there is plenty of good stuff out here like this. And Josh, I mentioned that pizza project we tried to do. Some of those subjects actually ended up on uh, Gelb's season of uh, Chef's Table. The one he did the all pizza masters. Oh, nice. He comes from an interesting family of like artists and socialites. And he's, you know, he's an interesting guy to research as well. Yeah. And he's done more than just the food stuff. I mean, he has expanded. He this this kind of glossy documentary style. Um, he has applied to other subjects as well. Uh, I reviewed the series that he did for Disney Plus called uh, Marvel 616 that he produced and various people directed. But it was definitely this similar kind of approach to various aspects of Marvel Comics and and the history of Marvel Comics. And he is also directing a feature documentary about Stan Lee, who is, of course, the Marvel Titan who co-created many of the most famous Marvel characters. And that's also going to be on Disney+. And and I feel like that stuff is interesting, but it does all, I mean, and I don't know if this is the case for the food stuff, but at a certain point, it does all feel a bit like a commercial for whatever he's doing as much as it is like insightful about something. Yeah. I, I felt with the, the chef's table stuff, I was interested cause I was, I like learning about the chefs, but I, I admittedly like I stopped watching at some point just because it was like, uh, I didn't want to watch 36 hours. <laughs> what? Why not? <laughs> Netflix wants you to watch 36 hours of everything and never turn it off. They sure yeah. do. Hey Josh, did you ever see Gelb's, uh, narrative feature film, The Lazarus Effect. I did actually see that, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that was a weird thing where I feel like after the success of Jiro, he, I, you know, had an opportunity to do different things and he ha- was hired to direct this random horror movie and it was not good. And clearly that's the only narrative film that he's directed and clearly going in this other direction and really doubling down on all the food documentary stuff in his particular documentary style was what worked for him. But yeah, that was, I mean, I barely remember anything about it, but I did see it. And I remember even at the time it was like, let's go see the new horror movie from the director of Jiro dreams of sushi. Like how random is this? (laughs) The fish is bad. No revenge of the tuna or something. Maybe that would have been an interesting one instead. Um, I wanted to mention one thing that we didn't mention, which uh, was the music and a lot of that Philip class uh, stuff. And, uh, I, a quote from Gil by, uh, where he says, I think it works because Philip Glass music is kind of a metaphor for Jiro's work ethic because it's repetitive, but it also builds on itself and escalates in, the, in it's the same way with Jiro's work. Because every day he's going, he's doing the same routine and he's trying to do everything exactly the same, but just reaching for that one step of improvement. And I feel like the music's doing the same thing. Right. I mean, and this definitely feels like a documentary with a lot of similar beats that you could see if you made a documentary about someone like Philip Glass or, you know, a composer or a conductor or any kind of like a classical musician where the rigor of that to become a world-class like violinist or something is similar to the rigor of becoming this world-class sushi chef. Yeah. So, I mean, going back to, you know, the first question you asked me uh, in the last segment of like kind of figuring out the emotional and artistic pieces that match. We think uh, Gelb pretty much excelled on that here. And as I said, I'm happy Jiro's still making sushi and I hope he's dreaming of it still too. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I did see somewhere that, you know, if at 97, he, he is infrequently in the restaurant. And if you go there now, most likely you will get his son cooking or uh, making the sushi for you, but yeah, still, still there. 
Um, it is apparently very difficult to get in and you have to have those connections, but the restaurant is still open. And as you said, his other son's restaurant, easier to get into perhaps, is also still there. So um, hopefully whenever Jiro does pass away that the, the son will finally fully take over and the restaurant will be able to continue. Uh, I, I thought the end of the movie, here's a spoiler, kids, when they kind of do that postscript and they say that uh, when Jiro got his three stars, Michelin stars, that year it was Yoshikazu who had made the sushi for all of the Michelin kind of visitors, the judges, the guides, whatever. So that was uh, that was interesting. And it's nice that Yoshikazu has reached that height as well. Right. And one hopes that, I mean, I think one of the themes of the film too is that even if he has reached that height, even if he makes the sushi just as well, I think it's the food critic or someone who says essentially like, Jiro is such this titan and he's such this famous figure that in order to be appreciated on the same level, Yoshikazu's sushi has to be like twice as good. So right, hopefully right. when he does fully take over, people will give him that benefit of the doubt that he deserves. I think I think they probably already have because of this movie. Yeah. Um, I did also briefly want to mention, and I actually rewatched this, uh, the documentary now parody of this film called Juan Likes Rice and Chicken. Which, uh, as as everything like with documentary now is so meticulous, and especially if you, I, I watched it literally right after I finished this, and I the way did they too. recreate the style of, every, of everything that they do on that show is amazing, and that that is a lot of fun. And and actually, I almost wonder, I don't know when that Chef's Table episode that you were talking about came out, the one with the chef in Patagonia or whatever. But the idea yeah. in that documentary now episode is that it's this remote. Uh, outpost in like Colombia, I think, where they have this rice and chicken restaurant that you have to like hike six miles to get to. And I wonder if they were influenced by that. I think that, you know, I mentioned the El Bui uh, episode of, uh, of Bourdain. I think that that is probably what they were influenced by there because that was like in this like seaside kind of uh, outpost that you really had to find to find it. So to speak. yeah. But I would I, I feel like we may have talked about it before in another documentary episode, but I, you know, I definitely always recommend documentary now is so effectively done. It's a great show. Yeah, we like documentary. Yeah. Now. So uh, anything else about the legacy of Jiro that you want to talk about, Jason? I think it's time for us to go get some sushi together. Josh, expand your horizons. That ain't going to happen. But uh, that is Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. And uh, give us your sushi recommendations online and on social media. Oh, we're happy to take all food recommendations, sushi, chicken and rice, pizza, whatever you guys want, spaghetti and meatballs. Just bring them all. Instant rice for Josh. Oh, yeah. Tell him what the best instant rice is. So uh, we're at awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm not sure if we have a blue check mark or not, nor do I really we care. Don't. Never did. Um, I'm at Jason Harris Comedy. Jay Harris comedy and all the socials. And of course, what a time to plug eat this comedy uh, on Instagram and the website. You can check it out. What I do is uh, team up with restaurants. We curate a special menu. You buy a ticket all in, you get dinner and a comedy show. Yeah. I want to, I want to see Jiro attend your comedy show. If you can make Jiro laugh. Jason dreams of making Jiro laugh. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I am at Josh Bell hates everything.com. It's not much there, really. But uh, more at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook, at Signal Bleed on Twitter, and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And if you're listening to this on the Produced by David Rosen Patreon, I thank you. We yeah, all think you, yes. No, Dave thanks you. I don't see a damn penny on this thing. <laughs> well, we get more patrons. Maybe there'll be more to go around. So we lots more stuff it. hitting the Patreon soon. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you for signing up for that. And if you're listening to this later, you could have listened to this months, weeks, sometime hey, ago. I'm just happy they're listening, however they're listening. I agree. Yes. We are. We always very grateful. And thanks to everyone who suggested this as a as an episode for this season. We always appreciate those suggestions. And of course, thanks to our celebrity chef, Poppin, who didn't know he was popping in on this podcast, but neither did we. James Trees, go check out Esther's Kitchen, Al Salito Posto, Ada's Wine Bar. And by the time this comes out, there might be five other restaurants he has running. And uh, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, maybe tune in for the premiere of our next season or, 
Well, either way. Yeah, go do that. Listen to the back episodes. Just uh, catalog it. Do whatever you got to do, guys. Yeah, listen to 36 hours of Awesome Movie Year, much <laughs> like the Chef's Table episodes. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.